Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, February 22nd, 2018, the Oxfam Aid and Exploitation Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. I am joined as usual uh, by Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristala? I am very well, thank you. Adam, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you, Kristala. Just about keeping body and soul together. Could keep those two together. It's important. Yeah, well, you know, some philosophers' positions on it notwithstanding, I find the idea of separating them distressing and try to resist it as best I can. Um, today we are bringing you another single topic edition focused on a big story in the news. That story is the crisis engulfing Oxfam, one of the UK's largest and best known overseas aid charities, over the sexual misconduct of its employees during disaster relief operations in Haiti after the devastating earthquake of 2010, and the issues that raises more broadly for the accountability of charities and other organizations that deploy staff to the developing world. And we are fortunate enough to have with us a guest whose expertise and experience place him very well to discuss that topic uh, for our benefit, but also for yours, uh, listeners. That is Dr. Nicolas Lemay-Hébert, Nick to his friends, uh, right. who is a senior lecturer at our International Development Department. Um, as well as knowing a lot about state building and international aid generally, Nick's done a lot of work specifically on Haiti, so he knows the place as well as the issue. Thanks for being with us, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. The crisis, and perhaps the fight for its life, for Oxfam began on Friday, when the Times newspaper revealed that a number of their staff, including their director of operations in the country, Roland van Houwermeren, paid locals, some of them underage, for sex while stationed in Haiti after the earthquake of 2010. Worse, the newspaper alleged, the organization had sought to sweep the issue under the carpet upon learning of this conduct, allowing several of those involved to resign voluntarily before an investigation had been concluded and failing to disclose full details of what had gone on either to its regulator, the Charity Commission, or the government of Haiti. Van Houwermeren went on to work again in the sector, having received a sort of reference from Oxfam that did nothing to highlight their concerns. Uh, needless to say, uh, facing severe criticism from the UK government, from which it receives a large proportion of its funding, and with thousands of donors privately cancelling their direct debits and celebrity endorsers severing ties, uh, the charity has been in dire straits, struggling to get its story straight and contain the damage to its public image. With allegations now beginning to spread to other charities, a number of staff from Médecins Sans Frontières were apparently pulled out of Haiti for unclear reasons. It seems like this may be a moment of reckoning for the sector more broadly. The stormy conversation surrounding this specific issue, uh, which has contained no shortage of faux pas, clumsy statements and opportunistic interventions, has led some to call for a wider conversation about the colonial overtones regarding how many of those from rich, developed world uh, employers conduct themselves when sent to operate in the developing world, whether for charities, governments or private businesses. So, Nick... You uh, know a lot about aid. You also know a lot particularly about Haiti. How surprised were you by some of the allegations that have uh, been tumbling out into the public domain in the last week? So on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say 0, literally, because everyone who has actually a little bit of experience on the ground 
would have witnessed something of this sort. And the problem here is that it's a systematic, systematic problem. So we have s- several institutions, several organizations trying to hide the, the behavior of the staff, but also acting with, and, and staff members acting with impunity. So we have that, but it's also a systemic issue. So that means it's, a, it's an issue, it's a problem on the whole for the, for the whole field that is humanitarian aid and also peacekeeping. So it's, it's interesting that obviously it's a perfect storm for such a crisis right now with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. But we c- some people tend to forget that um, it's a good conversation that we have had for a number of years regarding peacekeepers. And so it's nothing new for anyone who has an interest in intervention broadly. And uh, w- you can remember crisis going you know, back to uh, Cambodia in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, with, um, pe- with scandals uh, of peacekeepers. And the reaction at that time of the uh, special representative of the Security General, uh, when he was asked about scandals, including uh, peacekeepers um, uh, using prostitutes, uh, was basically boys be boys. Mm-hmm. And since then, the UN has tried to shift its policy towards these questions. But the reality is that the behavior of the staff hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. So we are faced with a systemic problem where the, the institution is trying to change it, but the actual behavior is not changing it. Yeah, but I mean, w- w- one of the features of, um, I guess, the, the, the Me Too era has often been this recurring concept of the open secret, which mm-hmm. is to say that there are patterns of behavior, individual and collective, that are well known within some particular uh, professional sphere or social milieu, but the outside world is not aware of them. Mm-hmm. And w- the reason why they blow up as scandals is because uh, the wider world gets a sudden insight into things everybody has known apparently within a, a contained area of society and mm-hmm. is, is, is horrified by what they find, which then throws everybody within the, uh, the uh, milieu in question into tumult because something that they have been aware of and perhaps not thinking about a certain way becomes suddenly an extremely uh, high-intensity scandal and how they have reacted to it for an extended period of time suddenly needs to be accounted for in a way mm-hmm. that they did not think that it, that it would be. Would you say that it's fair then to characterize this kind of behavior as being in that sort of open secret category, which is that a lot of people have known this is going on and are only now waking up to the fact that maybe seen in the light of the wider world, this is a, like a, a, a much harder thing to answer for and excuse than they had thought about it as being at the time? Absolutely. Uh, look, I think one of the particularities of the Me Too movement also is to connect the different anecdotes. So, you know, in uh, 10 years ago, it would have been just one of the, you know, one, one of the features in, in the Daily Mail or something like that. We would have thought about this for, say, a week or two, nothing more. And now it's just that the, the powerful, uh, the power of the movement is to connect all these individual stories and create a narrative out of this. Mm-hmm. And so now, what we look at when we look at the, what's going on in Haiti, what we see is well, first of all, it doesn't just start and end there. It's a Haitian story, of course. Haitian locals also see this as a broader narrative about what's going on in the country for a number of years. That's a different story we can discuss. But for the the outside world, as you you were saying, we are looking at this now, and then we are connecting this consciously or unconsciously with obviously the Hollywood. Uh, you know, milieu, mm-hmm. and also uh, 
those who are a little bit more informed, as I was saying, to uh, what was going on in peacekeeping in general. So there were really worse scandals, you know, and to all, all things being relative, of, of course, but there were worse scandals in Haiti regarding sexual mm-hmm. exploitation and abuse. And we were talking about, um, you know, a few years ago, a, a, a ring, a sexual ring that was actually um, set up by... Um, by uh, Sri Lankan peacekeepers, the old battalion was sent back to the country, and they were using young, very, very young female, actually, in the capital city. That was a horrendous event, but no one thought about this. No one outside of the people who are actually interested. You will never hear about this. So now we have a scandal that is um, that is very important, very uh, and very significant. But I think that what it what what makes it significant right now is how people are connecting this to the wider problem of abuse of power in general. Mm-hmm. And so, and that goes back to your point about colonial undertones here, is that what is going on in, in most of these interventions is that there's an asymmetry of power between those who the have and the have not mm-hmm. in the country, but also between internationals, say, the expats community, and those who are in the receiving end of the of the aid mm. uh, and the international uh, intervention. And so when you look at it, what you find maybe disgusting if you are someone who is not a, a researcher on these issues is you will be thinking, there are there are people who just survive an earthquake and now they have to sell the body in order to get some money. Well, that's what I mean. That's one of the you know there are many problematic aspects of this, but one of the troubling aspects of it has been the way in which it has been characterized in a lot of the reporting is as uh, use of prostitutes or sex workers by those who are working for uh, Oxfam or, or other aid agencies. But sometimes the way it's described, it sounds like these are people who are using their access to funds and aid relief to, mm-hmm. in essence, trade what they have to provide in the way of aid for sex, which is, you know, um, so it, characterizing the people that they are uh, abusing in that way as sex workers almost uh, uh, undermines the severity of the uh, of, of the abuse of power involved, right? Mm. No, absolutely. This this side of the story is a bit murky. It's a bit difficult actually to have a, a clear understanding of what's going on precisely there because Roland, as you were mentioning, is saying basically that um, he was entering into a, 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 an intercourse that was with a mature, mature women. And, uh, and there was no payment involved. So, I mean, there are different sides of the story, I guess. But the reality is that, yes, people will be questioning this power that you have, power that is the power of the money, we are really well paid. All our you know, gar- graduates that will be aid workers in the future know that they will be well paid in that system. They will, have, they will receive tremendous you know, salaries. Mm-hmm. And that will put them in a situation of power when they are operating in these countries. Mm-hmm. And so and, uh, on top of that, obviously, uh, add, you know, the race, the gender, the, uh, and, and other dynamics. And then you have potentially, obvious, not potentially, you have a, 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 an asymmetry of power. So the question is, it's not just the question, the, 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 the specific, you know, information about this case is whether or not um, they have been using some of the money or not, have they paid it. What, what I think makes people a bit uneasy with this is the asymmetry of power, plain and, and, uh, plainly. And also the moral crisis that is linked to that. Is humanitarian work a business like any other, uh, 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 any other business? Mm. 
Is this is this the same thing? Are we do we do should we look at these people, these individuals through the same lens, through the same ethical lens that we will be judging, say, contractors for Total who will be working in 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 Haiti? Hmm. Well, that's one. Of the, I mean, that that's uh, likely to prove one of the issues around this, right? Is this going to remain contained to a question about charitable organizations, aid organizations, how they conduct themselves? Or does this become a wider interrogation of how all of those in the same basic milieu conduct themselves? So is it going to be only people from Oxfam who use sex workers in uh, the developed world who end up on the hook for this? Or is the fact that they're often going to be sitting in you know, the same room as people who might work for a private organization or for a government engaging in the same conduct, um, is, is that going to become part of the conversation? Do we have a higher standard for aid workers? Or is everybody going to have to be accountable in the same way now or at some point? But I think the, the uh, person, my personal answer to that is both, actually. I think that we have to have higher standards for those who are there to save strangers, as our, our colleague Nick Wheeler would say. Um, I think it's it's important that we that we recognize the particularities of this job. It's you know you are making good life, good money out of this, but there there's a normative angle here. You have to help people. Mm. I'm not sure that you know these people who are enjoying the sex parties in the office of Oxfam. We have to say, mm. actually really thought about their role in the country. Mm. And also, um, but as also at the same time, I think that these standards should be applied to every single person mm. operating in Haiti. And that's a wider problem in Haiti, you see. So right now, we don't even know uh, the number of uh, NGOs operating in country. So there's a regulation in Haiti that says, well, uh, can you please um, report to the Haitian government when you enter the country? Actually, no one does it. So we mm. don't even know. We think that there are 10,000 NGOs. But this Bill Clinton said that, actually. But we have no idea. And this is, this is not confirmed by any evidence. So if it's 10,000 NGOs, it will be actually the second highest uh, NGOs per capita in the world after India. Mm. So there's a lot of NGOs making profit out of this or, or operating in the country. And, and they are operating without any any sort of regulation and anyone looking at them outside of uh, OCHA doing doing some of, of this from the UN system itself. Um, so yeah, now we have to think about how to make sense of this of this whole mess that is sometimes uh, intervention after disasters and try and try to, to bring morals back in, in a mm. sense. And well, it seems, I mean, the, the way in which an aid organization or an aid charity is, uh, I suppose, more vulnerable than, you know, an oil company, for example, mm -hmm. might be is that, like, they are exposed to the reputational risk mm -hmm. that may much more immediately and directly affect their bottom line that comes from something like this. The two main places that you get money if you're, if you're a charity are... Uh, Western governments mm -hmm. and charitable private donors. Now, both of those constituencies are going to be much less inclined to give you money if you are uh, very visibly failing to apply basic ethical standards to the conduct of your employees overseas. And we can see that starting to manifest right now. Oxfam is trembling, uh, in effect, for the prospect that it might lose a huge proportion of its income in a very short period of time if it doesn't get this kind of thing contained. Their, their way out is going to have to be to try and reassure the world 
that they have systems in place if they did not before that prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Mm-hmm. Good talking point, I guess, and they will certainly make it, but is it going to prove possible to build systems that actually do provide the kind of robust protections they're going to be saying that they provide anytime soon, uh, in, in your view? Well, you know, let, f- f- first of all, let's, let's be clear. It's, it's, it's a bit unfair to, uh, to uh, what's going on to Oxfam to, to a certain extent that now that it, it, everyone is criticizing Oxfam, it's becoming a little bit like the face of the scandal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and in the um, right at, in, in the, the aftermath of this crisis, we have, I don't know if you've seen that in the news, but we have a number of NGOs reporting out of a sudden, out of a, sudden a number of, you know, allegations that have been uh, researched or in, in their own organization. Right. And so no, like, not trying yeah, to attract any inter- attention and, you know. Because well, uh, Oxfam, <laughs> yeah, like but Oxfam found themselves in this kind of cover-up accusation. Sure. Like it's not just what you did, it's the fact that you weren't accountable for it and everyone else is suddenly thinking, in their headquarters, exactly. there but for the grace of God, uh, go all of us. It's right? also a convenient time to slip your own news in when there's something much bigger on the same topic going on. So it's also fairly hmm. strategic on the part of the other organizations doing this disclaimer work. Yeah. And if everyone unloads uh, whatever they've got in the cupboard now, the hope might be that it becomes a kind of, you know, errors were made, uh, everyone is at fault, let's, uh, you know, let, let's not get hung up on, yeah, on anything more than the need to look forward and build, also, which is important. But, also yeah. this idea that the system is just too big to change, and I, and I wonder whether whether we'll move towards that. There's just, it's the structures are too hard, yeah, we need some accountability, yeah, we'll do it, of course, platitude, platitude, and not much will change. And I don't know what you think, Nick, but I'm not sure it's a question of whether things can't change structurally more than a question of will, mm-hmm. will to change. Well, the thing is now we now what is changing is so there are cha- there are changes in the landscape, you see, because of the Me Too movement, as I was mentioning, first of all. But also one of the important point here is obviously the scandal is in Haiti and, you know, it's a very poor poor country and all this, but it's also the cover-up that was behind that. Mm. And so, in, in, in effect, this ties it up with the, um, with the Central African Republic scandal that happened a, a number of uh, years ago. I don't know if you follow that, but so that was basically peacekeepers, bef- not under the UN at that time, just before the, the, the UN mission was set up, French peacekeepers were actually using the power and privilege um, to have sex with young boys and, and, and young girls in car and basically in exchange of food for food. And so there was a, a, a whistleblower inside the organization who decided to um, to address this issue or try to attract uh, attention to this. And so that was the birth of a movement that was called, uh, called Blue. Mm. Um, and so it's basically a former director of uh, UN Women who uh, decided that, you know, enough is enough. I'm trying to change the system from inside. It's not working. So I'm going to have this kind of WikiLeaks type of organization where people can uh, leak documents to me, and I'll be making sure that this attracts attention in the right place. And the UN system, what Anders Kompass was saying is that the problem is obviously the scandal, but also how the UN reacted to that. So he was leaking a chain of emails where everyone was just thinking about covering up their own, you know, Bottoms is that something we can say on radio, and and not and and not thinking about the actual people that yeah. are suffering, and this is exactly what's going on with this scandal. You see, so you the the, the cover up is well, you have this scandal, and then what we are talking about in the organization is 
writing a letter of recommendation for that guy in order to, that he gets another job elsewhere in Africa. Mm. Uh, this, this so is that outrageous. he can go quietly. Exactly, as well. yeah. exactly. But what about those young women? Yeah. So what is that? Just moving the discussion for a second. What is the what is the response in Haiti to this? Well. Uh, or responses. The Haitians are, are are seeing this very clearly. Yeah. You see, for them, there's a long narrative of of occupation in Haiti, and 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 they are no fools. Uh, for them, they connect this with the with the, with the other scandals because mm-hmm. for them it's it's fresh in the memories, mm-hmm. and also with all the aid that is disappearing. So for them, it's it's also a story about what is going on with this aid. So we are paying all these expatriates, and this is how they use the money, even if it's you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, conflating the different issues mm-hmm. because you can do whatever you want, I guess, with your salary. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's, it's not really using Oxfam money. But I think that this triggered in the newspapers a discussion more about the purpose of aid in a country mm-hmm. where it seems to be in, on, the, on, on, on kind of a route for com- co- constant dependency over, over yeah. NGOs. So that's why it's called the Republic of NGOs in in local uh, in local Haitian newspapers. So it's known as NGOs are actually the true, s- you know, source of power. And so when they behave like that, it's not just one of the other organizations. It's actually the one that is supposed to be the benevolent, you mm-hmm. know, ruler of Haiti that is actually hurting its own citizens in yeah. a sense. And it, I mean, it's it's indicative as well that like something apparently egregious has happened here in terms of the conduct of uh, uh, of employees uh, there is now a crisis fully in flow about uh, what happened and what was done about it at the time and who uh, owned up to what etc but it's very much the British government mm. that Oxfam seems to feel a sense of urgency about uh, placating and accounting for itself to Yet one might think that it would be the government of Haiti, the people mm. who are actually uh, sovereign in the country in which this stuff went on, that they would be at least as interested in, you know, accounting themselves for uh, being accountable to. That, of course, you know, I'm not naive. I understand exactly why that is. It's because their money comes from the British government and, uh, you know, not from the government of Haiti. But it still, it says a lot that it's... Uh, that it's in that direction that the efforts to explain oneself flow most urgently and quickly, right? Absolutely. And you see, so they have... I think that the Oxfam people have met the government of Haiti. I don't know what happened in these meetings. I know that the Asian government at least wanted to uh, to preserve, you know, safe face to a certain extent and had meetings with them. I don't, I'm not sure this will lead anywhere. Of course, I'm, I'm not expecting them to kick out the Oxfam out of the country. That would, that would be very, very unlikely. But... What also makes it a very interesting case, in a sense, is the um, the impunity angles. So bef- before that, most of the sexual scandals were from, or at least those who were uh, in the media, were from UN peacekeepers. It's, so obviously, UN peacekeepers, uh, they will uh, be operating under very strict SOFA rules. So that means that they have they benefit they benefit from impunity. So when a case like this will happen, especially if they are military and and police uh, officers, if they are civilians, slightly different. So military and, and police officers will be repatriated, and then God knows what happens. And it's very difficult to follow the actual military tribunal that was going to happen in in, mm-hmm. in a country. In this case, well, you know, on on, on paper, the Haitian government could actually 
you know, post-Sudan. It's, it's a possibility. So, so that brings another set of, of questions in there. So that, that could be yeah. interesting for future missions when we, we see now that, that the, the different organizations are now, as, a, as we were saying, uh, are now saying on, out of the open uh, how many cases happen and where. So it will be interesting to see how many governments pick up on these things. And the question is, whose, whose norms pertain in a theater like post-earthquake Haiti? Is it uh, the Haitian governments? Is it the aid company's own self-appointed standards? Is it the British government or other funders? It would seem to be a very messy, occasionally varying uh, combination of all of those things. But one can imagine why as a Haitian it might be disconcerting to have you know, such variable levels of, uh, of accountability. Absolutely. But, you know, in this case, precisely, when it happened, it will be under the, um, the rule of law of the Haitian government. So they could actually pursue them if they want. But the thing is, it was slightly different right after the, the earthquake, because as you were saying, um, following disasters, sometimes you have hybrid arrangements. Um, so there was an interim commission that was um, led by the international community and by the Haitian government. So they were in effect the sovereign power. So it would be different at that time if it happened during that specific time. But if it's after uh, 2011, 2012, then it will be, uh, it will fall under the, uh, under the, yeah, the Asian government, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it will be, it will be interesting. I mean, it, obviously, behind that, what for the Asian, um, the Asians, my, my Asian friends, what they see behind that is also a discussion about regulation from the state, as you were saying. And there are different models out there. Obviously, there's a Rwandan model, the model of, um, you know, if you want to operate in my country, you will have to go through me. And if you don't, if you don't do something that I, I find interesting, then don't operate here. I don't, I don't want you. And then the other, end of the spectrum is actually Haiti, <laughs> believe it or not, where no one knows what's happening and, um, and it's basically free for all, the new West kind of. So, um, so yes, so maybe hopefully this will push the Haitian government to play a more kind of leading role in, in, in trying to coordinate aid uh, on its own territory. It's time for Number of the Week, where we take a digit, link it to a new story, and uh, have some informative chatter on the basis of it. We're doing a joint one this week, because yes, coincidentally, we, we have both settled on the same new story that we think merits uh, attention. Now, listeners, yeah. I know Adam's taken a deep breath to launch into the story, but, but dear listeners, um, Adam and I had a little bit of a debate, a heated debate in advance of this. I'm going to expose our inner workings, Adam. You're going to break open the, uh, uh, yep. the black box, the box, pull down the curtain and reveal the, the wizened, tiny wizard behind it. Which is who we are, actually. We had a we had a serious conversation, heated conversation about whether we could do individual numbers of the week or joint numbers of the week. I was in favour of a shared one. I just want to put it out there. Adam Adam was a little bit well, I am you're a little bit uncomfortable, weren't you? Yeah, I mean sharing I, I, I'm, our I'm, numbers. What is that about? I'm, I am uh, I am both rule bound and also not a sharer uh, as a I general rule. See. So between those two things, it's provoked a lot of. Uh, Anxiety, complicated feelings yeah. that I'm not quite sure how to process. You'll but need I am to work through them afterwards. Yes, yes. 
Anyway, yep. shall, shall we proceed? Let so, us. the issue of the day um, is the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, uh, where 17 uh, students were killed, 14 were injured in, in Parkland, Florida, last week. Now, this is a topic that if we were going to get fully into the weeds of it would require a whole item, and perhaps we will give it uh, one uh, at some point in the future. Uh, but Clearly, it has given rise to another iteration of the long-running conversation about the individual right to own firearms in the United States, the enormous public safety dangers that that clearly creates, uh, the possibility of mass shootings, which seem to have become much more frequent, um, and the tension between parts of the country where the right to own a gun uh, is considered to be a core component in American identity and parts of the country where people think this is an increasingly untenable, uh, reckless endangerment of the lives of, of the American citizenry. Um, and one of the things that's been most striking perhaps about this one has been the speed and intensity with which the victims, at least those who were uh, students of the high school who, uh, who, who have survived, have uh, refused to play their appointed role as passive, sympathetic, apolitical victims and have taken right to the front line of the public political stage to say, um, you know, we do not consider it acceptable that the thousandth iteration of saying thoughts and prayers and then sweeping this issue under the rug is tolerable. We demand meaningful change to the availability of guns in the United States in response to this. And, you know, this is not an issue that we are parachuting in to talk about without legitimacy. This happened to us. We have unchallengeable legitimacy to talk about it, and we will not be derailed or deflected. And watching a number of people from the President of the United States to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, um, to uh, the leadership of the NRA, facing up to victims, uh, especially such young victims, who simply will not uh, pipe down and allow uh, allow a wave of sympathy to pacify them, uh, or claims that the issue should not be quote-unquote politicized to deflect them. Um, it's been a very interesting sight. And the only thing that makes me wonder if this could be the beginning of a more serious push to uh, begin the long task of pushing the boulder up the mountain to make the kind of society-wide conversational and cultural shift that will be required to roll back what has been an incessant torrent of liberalization rather than uh, increasing tightening of gun uh, gun ownership regulation over the last 20 years. My number of the week is 24 for the 24th of March, which represents those students' uh, push for what they're calling a ma the march for our lives. So coming off the back of what you're saying, Adam, absolutely. They are, the, these, this group of student is, students is remarkable for their ability to organise and not back down very quickly. They protested today again in Florida. There was uh, a large piece on CNN, the, the public forum, um, with Marco Rubio and families of, mm -hmm. of uh, victims and survivors and they've turned around tremendously quickly and you're right Adam they are not backing down and they're thinking really strategically really quickly about how to organize how to shape change um, and they're getting f controversially they're getting a lot of support from kind of high-profile 
uh, actors as well that are donating a large amount of money to, to this movement. So what you're asking is not implicates not just the shape of change, but I wonder with the half a million donation from... Um, from the Clooney's and the matched donation from Oprah Winfrey, um, what the movement is going to become and whether, I mean, they had quite a moral, they have quite a moral force that's unquestionable. And there are people within the protest groups also saying that they're worried about opening themselves up to vulnerability because they're taking because the donations are coming from democrats right mm. from democrat supporters so it reminds me also of the kind of beginning of the black lives matter movement and the whole post ferguson push mm-hmm. but i think it's really interesting and i think it's it's young people using social media and using public platforms in an extremely savvy way who are unwilling to take BS. Well, I mean, it it has been one of the long-running features of this issue that a big part of why change does not happen is because the the intensity of organization and the level of prioritization according to the issue by those who oppose any kind of meaningful regulation of guns has always vastly outstripped the intensity and organization of those who want to achieve some kind of regulation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if anything is to change, that probably is going to have to change. So if what's being built here can be sustained and broadened, like some of the... um, the force and intensity of how they are mo- organizing and communicating around the issue uh, yeah. could come to be recalled as you know the the, the seeds of something uh, something of an equal and opposite reaction to the to the uh, anti regulatory NRA push that's effectively become like, politically hegemonic over the last few decades. But who also seem completely ridiculous. I mean, their statement, the president president of the NRA's statement uh, was it yesterday. Um, talking about the school and the shootings and not taking advantage of, you know, vulnerable young people and all of this, it seemed completely out of step with with the reality on the ground. And I also wonder, yeah, yes, the NRA has a very deep hold institutionally, politically, mm. but and it dog whistles, but I wonder if it also starts to seem ridiculous in the face of all of this mm. in the face of this fury yeah i mean we we cannot and should not underestimate the vast support you know both not just intellectually but culturally yeah. that gun ownership in, has yeah. in the united states and getting movement but that you know the the way in which people interpret the individual right to own a gun is different today than it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago, and could be very different in 25 years from now. Mm. The question is, are people prepared to begin now what will be a long-term process of mm. attempting to win uh, you know, an argument across a range of fronts, intellectually, legally, culturally, politically? And mm. uh, this is the first signs I think I've seen for a while of something that looked like it could be the beginning of what will be a very long yeah long fight. Yeah, and I think as they gather momentum, their next job is to really set this group's next job is to think about what is their strategy, what is their target, what do they set their sights on. Hmm. And I think it's in that transformation that movements become what it is that you talk about, have that potential for achieving change, or they 
fizzle out until the next until the next massacre. So Nick has uh, Nick has left us for uh, for another pressing engagement, but uh, we wanted to spend a little longer talking about this uh, issue between ourselves uh, before we conclude the episode. Cristala, I know that you also, like Nick, have a have a background in uh, working in developing countries uh, and some interaction with the NGO sector. And you used to work for an NGO, uh, if I'm not mistaken. True, so right? you have, uh, unlike me, who is kind of learning about this through, through, I guess, you guys, but also, you know, reading, reading the news coverage and analysis that's, that's coming out of this story, um, you have got some direct experience of being on the ground in the presence of some of the kinds of dynamics that are now being laid bare in very critical press coverage. Mm. Um, so what has your personal experience been of how these kinds of power dynamics unfold and the challenges that are inherent to having organizations of this type operate in environments of that sort? I think that Nick's comments about widespread impunity working in contexts that are not your living and working in contexts that are not your own, as is what happened in Haiti and is what happens with aid workers and peacebuilding workers and the UN. I think that this landscape provides not just impunity but also this kind of feeling of, yeah, I guess it's it's the wide-ranging nature of impunity. No one will ever find out. I've seen lots of contexts and I've worked, especially I remember in Lebanon, where actually it's, I mean, talking about hooking into the Me Too movement, sexual exploitation of refugees and vulnerable women has happened and within the sector, within the voluntary sector and within the um, NGO world. And people have turned the other way because of this feeling that there isn't always... I mean, NGOs have responded, particularly feminist Lebanese NGOs in that context responded, but politicians in, in that context covered things up. And the men who perpetrated those abuses, to use the language of transitional justice were also transferred out and mm. the problem went away, right? So, I mean, it's contexts of various levels of severity that, that that I've worked in and around where you see kind of sexual harassment of people who are, are from the country when you're not from the country, all the way up to exploitation. And there was a constant, I agree with Nick, that there is a constant feeling of kind of shrugging your shoulders at this while this is... This is what the third sector does sometimes and and that's the way it is. And there is also a great deal of cynicism around it. So I wonder about when we talk about how to deconstruct or provide institutional protection, your question to Nick about how to make sure these kind of things don't happen and it's not just Oxfam run like waving its hands mm. in the air and saying our bad and and we'll do better, we promise, UK government, but really actual change. I think there needs to be multiple levels of, of change. The first is institutional, but also of 
people who manage those people who perpetrate those abuses having the kind of backbone to say not only is this not okay but we're not sending you back and we're not giving you a we're not giving mm. you an okay reference we're going to find a way to deal with this mm. in our institution yeah i mean it's it's sort of it, the way in which it's treated seems to imply a kind of lack of perceived seriousness oh, totally. it, what it reminds me of is these stories about misconduct in the church over yeah. many years where essentially like it wasn't that the institution was like cheerfully fine about it yeah. but when they found out like it was perceived to be a sufficient sanction that you yeah. would like tell someone off and then send them somewhere else yeah. possibly to do the same thing again yeah. as though you had total discretion to decide uh, like who should know what and what was the appropriate sanction without any of the other stakeholders being read into the facts. And also because protection of your institution church or otherwise is uh, the the reputation of your institution is the paramount thing that's in the minds of those sending people elsewhere right mm. so yeah it's not it's not that great um yeah he might have done x or y but we can't let that get out which is in part also why oxfam buried part of that material you know and why other ngos are releasing desperately some of their internal reporting but probably not all of their internal reporting mm. So I think what needs to change is also this um, idea of the reputation of your organisation as the paramount thing to protect, but actually adhering to, to higher principles. It seems like, I mean, a couple of dangers, like maybe uh, have intersected to, provide, to, to contribute to this impunity. Like one is perhaps the slightly lazy heuristic of like outside observers which would be well the kind of people who will dedicate their lives to overseas aid work especially in you know potentially unstable or dangerous or immediately disaster struck mm. locations like they must be like very good conscientious kind of people yeah, so they're the, the ones who would trust yeah, they're the ones well there i was going to come to that in a minute like the outside view would be they're the ones who were going to like clearly have the interest of the people they've gone to help at heart and then the self-perception yeah. of the people who go it may well be well you know, here I am doing this quasi-heroic uh, activity when I could be doing other things. I must, ipso facto, be a good person, and therefore anything and everything else that I'm doing is somewhere between like a tolerable foible and a sort of reward for the fact that 90% of the time I'm, I'm doing great work here. Coupled with the fact that the people that surround a person who thinks like that often are people who think in very similar ways. So there's the kind of reinforcement of that mentality that, yes, everyone gets together for beers at the end of the day and talks about whatever it is that they, that they, uh, that they talk about and confirm each other's worldview about themselves, right? Mm. It's a very... The, the, this community is very um, insular, and is constantly self-reaffirming. So I agree with Nick that it took something like, the landscape of this is shaped by the global Me Too movement. And it's provided a platform that's raised up some of these voices internationally, not mm. domestically, um, to be able to respond with meaning because it, it's shattered that yeah, whatever kind of mentality. Yeah, that like sometimes things that look and seem fine to the people participating them in them in a given context 
do not look and seem fine when seen by like, different people in a different context, or when you know the perception of the people in the context yeah. like changes suddenly. That that seems to be a lot of what Me Too is about, and it's, it seems to have happened here. I mean, I, I referred to the colonial overtones yeah. earlier, and that's worth uh, maybe tapping into for part of the British conversation, which is that uh, <laughs> Mary Beard, the Cambridge yeah. academic, who is you know ordinarily a sort of lionized yeah. progressive figure, got herself into a real um, firestorm on Twitter by making the observation that, um, you know, maybe it is not so easy for people who go into dangerous or unstable places to adhere all the time to what she called, quote unquote, civilized uh, values. Yeah. Now, she puts scare quotes herself on civilized, but that does not seem to have done enough of the work to stop people um, you know, reacting to that as not a challenge to some of the colonial suppositions of these people, but a tacit affirmation of them that you know if we continue to conceive of all parts of the world that aren't like rich and white as some kind of anything goes wild west space in which you know the daring uh, uh, privileged people who, who go to do good you know just can't be expected to adhere to normal standards like there is it makes it sound like there is something about these environments and something about the people in them that makes it a 24-7 challenge to adhere to standards of basic decency in mm. your behavior if you're rich and white and you go to them mm-hmm. and that like that, that feels like it's putting a lot on the people and the environments mm-hmm. and like denying a great deal of the agency of the people who ought to know better and behave better who, mm-hmm. who were going to them. I think that, that that was at least one part I think of what made people so infuriated about this that it just it's it sounded like in a slightly gentler modern way it was tapping generations old tropes about you know why good colonial uh, mm-hmm. civil servants can sometimes go off the rails and, and, and be bad chaps. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I completely agree um, with that critique but I think there are two things about that one uh, the smaller point I've worked in I've worked in contexts away from my own country for the last 10 years right and in some of those places um, I've been isolated and worked with with uh, let me start that again. I've worked in contexts outside of my own country for the last 10 or so years. And I've seen firsthand um, the stress on people who do do this work. And divorce is high, breakdown is high, suicide is also high. Uh, so it, it, can be, it can be a stressful environment for people working in aid in peace building in development for a whole bunch of reasons that's one thing so it's not entirely facile to say that you go that 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 people's the context is challenging but i want to bracket that by saying absolutely uh, they're also very well paid and there are all sorts of support structures offered to international actors that are not offered to um, people who are from the context that people are working in. 
it speaks to hundreds of years of continuous colonial legacies that that are reflective of power asymmetries and the idea that white people go into a country, provide their aid and shouldn't be questioned about their intentions or their actions. And this is something that in the UK I think we need to look at. And there are lots of people, I think, responding to the Oxfam crisis also asking that question, what is it that we, good people, are asking what is it that we are doing, uh, what are those power imbalances that we're perpetuating and how is it that we have thought that this is that this way of communicating, Mary Beard's way of communicating what goes wrong is even remotely okay and where are the voices from colonised countries in this debate today in Britain and you've seen that there have been some responses in especially in the Guardian but I think more space needs to be made for voices from colonized post-colonial countries speaking to their own experiences now we're very Britain-centric here understandably but I think there's a massive shift in mentality that needs to happen here if we're talking about the aid landscape as well in the way that we see our own donations to um, developing world countries and what we expect from those donations and how we expect as a country particularly this kind of white post-colonial Britishness people to be grateful for the for the donations that we make. The, I mean, the, the acceptability of the way that people are portrayed in sport relief and those kind of large donation-seeking programs. I think it's time in Britain to have a, a much more honest conversation about what we expect from people in other countries that in the UK we support through aid and also what we expect of ourselves in those conversations. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Or please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where I would consider it a personal favour to me. So would Cristala. So would Scott in his absence. So would everybody else. If you would leave us a rating, leave us a comment, leave us a review, or just share us on social media to recommend the podcast. That would be that would be awesome because it helps other people discover us. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview where you can get updates on new editions and other posts from time to time uh, our participants today were Nick LeMay who is no longer with us but thank you very much to him Crystal la 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 uh, yes. where can people find you on social media they can find me on twitter at at yakinthu y-a-k-i-n-t-h-o-u I am Adam Quinn. You can find me on Facebook, uh, standing next to Lyndon Johnson in my profile photo, Adam Quinn 161 by number. I do most of my posting and sharing there, but if you absolutely insist on using Twitter, uh, then find me at Adam James Quinn over there too. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Thank you very much to the Pulse's Good Ideas Fund for their support for this podcast, as always. Much appreciated. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye.